This is Fans on the Run, a podcast made by, for, and about Beatles fans. And now, here's your host, Ethan Alexanian. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm Ethan Alexanian. Uh, I've tried recording this about four times so far. Let's hope it does the trick this time. All right, we have a Beatles broadcasting legend with us. For 38 years, he's been hosting a variety of different Beatles shows. Uh, First, it was the All Request Beatles show. That ran for a number of years. Then it changed its name to Every Little Thing. And uh, in various forms, one or another, it's still going to this day. And he just celebrated his 2000th episode. Uh, He was the co-host of uh, the Fab Four, one of the first Beatles podcasts. Uh, He's one of the co-hosts of Things We Said Today. And he's one of two Talk More Talk co-hosts that have not already been on my show. Would you please welcome Ken Michaels? (laughs) I want it to be the last holdout. From talk really? more talk, you know. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But but I'm a legend. Uh, uh, I'd I, say you're a Beatles broadcasting legend. Okay. All right. Well, well I mean, it's 38 years. That's not nothing. Uh, okay. Yeah. If, if as long as you say that, then I must be. Yeah. <laughs> of course, I'd be like, uh, whatever the opposite of Mark Lewison is, like the world's least authority on this <laughs> kind of thing. All right. Ken, how are you holding up in these weird times? It hasn't been easy for me. You know, um, I don't like staying home all day. I have to go out a little bit, you know, and when I do, I basically always have a mask on and I stay in the car most of the time. But it's kind of strange to stay in the house all day long. It does give me the opportunity, though, to do more work on my Beatle shows. (laughs) That's the only real benefit. Of this whole thing, so uh, silver yeah, linings. But, yeah, but I miss seeing people. I miss hugging people. Oh. <laughs> you know things like that. It's uh, you don't realize how much it means to you until you haven't done it for a while. It's a necessary so. evil these days. Like I, I, I miss being able to hug people, mm-hmm. but now six feet away. <sighs> I again I've said this once I've said this before I don't like living through a historical event. Mm. Well, there are good historical events. So you shouldn't mind living through those. No, I know, but I'm thinking like something that will probably be referred to as like the great quarantine of 2020. Mm. Have books written about it by scholars in the future. Yeah, well, we'll see how we come out of this. Uh, I think we'll come out okay. We're a pretty resilient bunch. I think so, and I hope so. Yeah. You know, I, I'm very much a positive person. So, uh, I mean, you if know, the human I, race was able to survive a couple plagues, I think we'll be fine. Okay. I, I, I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> Knock on wood. Yeah. All right. So, you know what? I'm just going to jump right in. Ken, when did you first discover the Beatles? 1964. Um, Like most Americans, the first Beatles song I ever heard was I Want to Hold Your Hand. Unfortunately, I don't remember the exact moment when that was. But I do know as a four-year-old at the time, I was just uh, captivated by the Beatles and their sound. And 
you had to live in those times to fully understand, even though I was only a little kid at the time, how the Beatles dominated everything. And I used to have a little transistor radio that I carried with me everywhere I went. And there were a few radio stations in New York City that I used to listen to that were the top 40 stations of that time. And um, they played Beatles constantly in 1964. I've never witnessed any kind of dominance like that in my life. And I've listened to a lot of music ever since. And I've been a, I've been a big chart buff and uh, chart guy following the Billboard charts. And other than when the Bee Gees were really hot in, uh, you know, when Saturday Night Fever was, was very big and you not only had their hits, but Andy Gibbs hits and all the people that the Bee Gees wrote for and so on and so on. The invasion That's the only thing of that the ever... Gibb brothers. Yeah, and uh, that was a good time for them. I love their music too. But in 1964, there was so much Beatle music being played. And um, we were playing catch up here in the United States because all their earlier stuff, like from the Please Please Me album on, you know, we had to hear a little bit later on, even though there were singles released here in 1963 that didn't chart at all and were only played a little bit on the radio in certain areas. Um, once 1964 happened and I Want to Hold Your Hand exploded, and then it just led to all these other hits, their current stuff at the time, and their older stuff of the last year and a half before that. And so, like the time when the Beatles occupied the top five singles at the same time uh, in America, that had never been done before. And um, not to mention all the other singles they had on the charts and dominating the albums charts and writing for other people like Peter and Gordon and Billy J. Kramer and having those hits. So um, there was nothing quite like 1964. You'd put on one radio station, hear a Beatles song, change to another station, and most likely there'd be a Beatles song on there. And uh, it, I was just completely taken in by them at the time. And um, I was getting all the Beatles music. I'm not sure if I got every song the day that it came out or the week that it came out, but fairly close to its release. And between buying the records myself through an allowance through my parents or getting them through uh, as presents from my parents, I had an aunt that bought me a lot of, a lot of music. Um, I had just about every Beatles record as a child growing up pretty close to when they came out. So I was following all that from 1964 on. But it's not the same thing as a four-year-old as it would be a teenager. <laughs> you know, a teenager can have more of a grasp at everything going on in the world at that time. And like, for example, I don't ever recall, for a lot of people that, that grew up at that time that were older than me, what an event it was when a new Beatles song premiered on the radio or a new Beatles album premiered on the radio. I don't remember that. I just remember an onslaught of Beatles music being played all the time on the radio. And they became my favorite group, still are to this day. And, um, and that's basically it. You know, I have some very strong memories back in the 60s of the Beatles. Um, I never saw A Hard Day's Night when it first premiered in theaters. The first Beatles movie I ever saw was Help. And I was in uh, a movie theater in Brooklyn, New York. 
Um, and I went there alone at the time. And after the first showing, I decided I was going to stay in the theater to see it twice. And uh, my vivid memory is after the very beginning of the movie, there would be a flashlight beaming in my row. And it was an usher with my mother there ready to take me out of the theater. So, uh, you know, I thought that I'd be clever and uh, do something which nobody else had ever thought of before, seeing a movie twice, you know. Uh, <laughs> but then the fascists but, come and try and drag you away from help. That's true. How dare they? I know. You know. The better of the two movies, in my opinion. Ooh, you and I are going to get along fine, Ethan. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> You know, you hear so much these days about how A Hard Day's Night was so much better than Help. I love both of them for different reasons, but I was really mesmerized by The Beatles and Help because, for the one thing, it was in color, mm -hmm. and there were so many great scenes. Well, the thing is, with the two movies, A Hard Day's Night is, I'd say, more clever. Like, it's almost more intellectual, but from a oh, pure yeah. enjoyment standpoint, I would watch help any day over a hard day's night hmm. and i'm not knocking a hard day's night i love that movie as well but i get more enjoyment out of watching help because it's also like from like a cinematography perspective it's beautifully shot oh i know uh, um what was the scene uh you're gonna lose that girl where they were doing mm -hmm. it in the studio yep it, it still blows me away like i think that might be the best recorded uh performance of a Beatles song on film. To me, probably the best, uh, well, I, I'd call it a video, even though it wasn't thought of as a video for one song. It was part of a movie. The best moments of the Beatles on film is for Ticket to Ride, seeing them ski in the Swiss Alps. I mean, it's the way the whole awesome. thing was, yeah, when they're hovering over the piano and you got the notes above them and sometimes they're falling when they're when they're skiing and you know, all the fun that they're having at that moment. Mm -hmm. um, it's just so perfectly shot. And all the different um, locations that they shot in, like the Bahamas, for example, Salisbury Plain, all of that. It's just so beautifully shot. Um, I think A Hard Day's Night, in terms of dialogue, was much sharper and wittier. And it also helped to define the characters and personalities of the Beatles for some people who never got to hear them speak or got to know their personalities that well a hard day's night was the introduction for a lot of people and i, I and, go as far as saying help had more of a plot even if the plot didn't make sense mm -hmm. yeah and still i i always uh pointed the one scene where um ringo is down in a a basement where he's being threatened by the tiger um, and then a whole stadium has to rise and sing Beethoven's, what is it, Fifth Symphony or Ninth Symphony in D minor, whichever one that was, and everybody's singing it, and then the, the tiger, you know, calms down. <laughs> and, yeah, I think that it was just so hysterical. I still think it's very funny, and, and the kind of thing that, that Mighty Python would take from. You know, I had Richard Porter on uh, not too long ago, and he brought up that same scene with Ringo, and he said he went to the actual like bar where they filmed that. There isn't right. a basement. I don't know why that just kind of freaked me out. There's no basement there. Huh. Well, 
all they had to do was just get the right scenery yeah. and make it look like it was. A little of the so, old movie magic. Yeah. But help still to this day. I love seeing it. I think it was a wonderfully produced and shot film. What What was the first Beatles album that you remember getting? Um. Well, the first one I ever owned was Meet the Beatles. But I don't remember actually buying it. Okay. But that was my introduction to them outside of I Want to Hold Your Hand. It was the first one I ever saw in a record store. And then all of a sudden you'd have the Beatles' second album, you know, talking about the American releases mm -hmm. and something new and A Hard Day's Night, Beatles 65 at the end of the year. You know, it was a lot of music all coming out in 1964. What I don't get so, about the Beatles' um, second album wouldn't it have been their third album in America? Well, if you count introducing the Beatles on VJ, it would be, but it was their second album on Capitol. Yeah, fair. <laughs> it, that, that always irritates me for some reason, even though I know it's the second Capitol album. It's like, but it's not the second album, though. It is on Capitol Records. Yeah. <laughs> I heard a, a thing with Neil Aspinall once being asked about the American albums and someone had mentioned the Beatles second album and he was just dumbfounded saying, wait, they actually named an album the Beatles second album. Well, the Beatles themselves probably weren't all that much aware of the albums here. They just knew that they put out more albums and they gave you less songs. And it wasn't always the exact same sequencing. Sometimes it was similar. You know, the similarities between Meet the Beatles and With the Beatles, mm -hmm. for example. But even when the Beatles introduced songs on stage live, they would say something like, "It's this is on uh, Beatles 6 or whatever, and not really know what the album was. Mm -hmm. You know, they didn't really keep track of it over here. That must so. have been weird for them, just going around the world seeing all these different versions of their albums and not really knowing what the hell was going on. Yeah. You know, it's, um, but for all the people that grew up on these American albums, that's how they remember it. Mm -hmm. And they have a lot of memories attached to those albums. I have to say, even though I was brought up on those albums, I'm not as attached as older folks are that grew up on those albums. Once the Beatles came out on CD in 1987, I went straight for the British releases. Mm -hmm. And that's how I've listened to them really ever since. I mean, they may not be better albums than the British albums, but they, even me, like a youngin who didn't even grow up knowing that those Capitol albums existed, they have like a charm to them, especially like those Dave Dexter Jr. Uh, duophonic mixes with all the added reverb uh -huh. they have their own charm to them i agree you know i was so used to those mixes that when i heard those recordings dry like especially i feel fine and she's a woman it was almost like it's lacking something now mm -hmm. it's lacking the presence that it had on the american releases uh same thing with i want to hold your hand you know but yeah, there is a lot of logic in what they did on some of those American albums. I mean, I think it was brilliant to start Meet the Beatles with I Want to Hold Your Hand. Mm -hmm. You know, and then go into I Saw Her Standing There. Two killer tracks back to back like that. Although, to me, 
you know, just about every Beatles song, it go, they all go from good to great. So you can't go wrong in the way that you sequence Beatles albums. But to start with, I Want to Hold Your Hand, I think was really important since that was, you know, the song that launched them here. Just so I know if we're going to be friends or not, what are your thoughts on Mr. Moonlight? I love the song. Okay, good. We're going to be great friends. <laughs> you know, it, it started to get this reputation as the worst Beatles song of all time. And once you get that reputation, it's hard to erase it. And this kind of carries over in conversations. And I think a lot of people don't like the song because of the organ solo, which some consider to be cheesy. I think it works very well in the recording. I love, love John's vocals, especially the way the song starts out. It's... It may be a bit of a corny song, mm-hmm. but hey, you know, A Taste of Honey is corny. Uh, I, I'd take Mr. Moonlight over half of Please Please Me, to be honest. I wouldn't go that far, <laughs> but I do like Mr. Moonlight. I think it's gotten, you know, a, a reputation that is not deserved. You know, we just did a show, by the way, on Things We Said Today, where we each discussed our five least favorite Beatles songs. Could you recap your list for us? Or do you want to save that for our listeners who will flock over to your episode? Well, let me just say that between the three co-hosts, one of them picked Mr. Moonlight. And it wasn't me. But uh, I'll tell you that, um, I'll tell you one of my least favorite is Dig a Pony. Okay, yeah, I'd get that. I mean, Dig a Pony has got really ridiculous lyrics to it that don't make any sense. But at the same time, and I feel like a hypocrite saying this, I love a song like I Am the Walrus, oh. which is all yeah. stream of consciousness lyrics that don't really make any sense. It's all imagery. And once you get used to the lyrics and you're singing along with them, you don't mind them and you grow to love them. And I, I love so much about I Am the Walrus, the way that it was recorded, all the different elements involved. It's such a weird, freaky track. I certainly couldn't understand I Am the Walrus as a little kid growing up but um i love that song and yet the silliness in the lyrics of dig a pony make no sense to me and the song kind of meanders a bit um i think it's one of the weakest piece of music yeah not to me i just um it doesn't flow all that well you know and yet i do say beatles songs go from good to great so the worst beatles songs i still consider to be good there isn't any Beatles song that I regret having bought. But um, Dig a Pony is, is my least favorite. That's fair enough. <laughs> so, what? Um, how did you get started in uh, broadcasting uh, a Beatles radio show back in, what was it, 1981, 82? March of 1982. I went to the New York Institute of Technology in Old Westbury, Long Island, to study communications, and I knew that I wanted to get involved with radio. Uh, most of the time, my, my um, ambition was to be a DJ, even though I did a lot of production work at the radio station. And when you're in, in college radio, hopefully they give you a lot of opportunities to be on the air, and I got to do a number of different formats of radio. I did a Top 40 show, I did a rock format show, and one of the formats, that, one of the um, shifts that I had was Sunday nights from 10 to 1, which I always say was the least desirable shift of the week for students. 
at the station um, because from one in the morning till six, it was all automated. Uh, a lot of the students didn't want to be on the air on the weekends. Um, weekends were a time for fun. Mm -hmm. And um, so I had the latest shift on Sunday nights and people there at the college and at the radio station knew I was a big Beatles fan based on the Beatles music that I played on the radio during my shows. And also I used to wear Beatles shirts all the time. And one of my friends who at the time became the program director of the station suggested that I do a Beatles show, which I hadn't even thought about doing. It never, ever enter entered my brain at all. I mean, so at I started that point, doing... had that format even been attempted? Uh, what do you mean? To do a, a specialty and... program on the Beatles and radio? Yes. Um, I think that I'm one of the first. You know, um, Al Sussman, who writes for Beatle Fan Magazine, once said to me um, at the Fest for Beatle Fans that he didn't really recall any weekly Beatle shows on the radio until mine came along, as far as a live radio program on the Beatles. There had been a syndicated show that Ringo hosted, Ringo's Yellow Submarine, which ran for something like a year. And um, But as far as a locally produced live show on the Beatles, I don't want to say I'm the first. It's safe to say I'm one of the first. Okay. The reason why I bring that up is because something like 10 years ago, I was looking online and I found out that there was a Beatles show in Toledo, Ohio called Breakfast with the Beatles, one of the many Beatles shows with that title. And the host had decided he was going to leave after 20 years of doing it. And I never even heard of the DJ. So there could be shows that existed that I just didn't even know about. So I just know that at that time, in 1982, I don't recall there being weekly Beatles shows mm -hmm. at all. So uh, I just like to say I'm one of the first, just to play it safe. I mean, that's why I called you a Beatles broadcasting legend. <laughs> okay. Well, you're making it official right now with this particular show. Yes, it is official. <laughs> official but, is the um... last word I would use to describe this podcast. <laughs> But anyway, I did the show. It started being the last hour of my shift from midnight to one, and I got no response at all. And then I thought to myself, my show is from 10 to one. Why don't I start my shift with the Beatles hour? And once I did that at 10 o'clock, then the phones lit up like crazy. And the unusual thing about this is that the show ran on the college radio station. And like a lot of college radio stations, they didn't have that big a radius that they covered. It was only a few miles around the, the college campus. Mm -hmm. But our signal was heard on cable television, and it was a mono signal. And while the audio from our station was being broadcast on a cable channel, you would see something like a swap and shop thing on, on the screen. So we did manage to develop an audience. People picked up on this. And they listened to the radio station throughout the week for all, you know, different kinds of music. Like most college radio stations, most of the week, certainly on weekdays, we played a lot of the new rock and roll mm -hmm. that had to be broke on the radio before the commercial stations would latch on to them. So we had a lot of specialty programs on the weekend. And I met a guy named Ed Ryan at the time when I started doing this Beatles show at um, a record store that I used to work at, a record chain called Record World. And 
he was a huge Beatle fan. He knew not only the Beatles music, but all their solo music. We got into a lot of great conversations, and I thought, this guy should be a co-host with me. And I put him on the air with me, and in about a month, I couldn't shut him up on the air. And uh, we were really good together as a team. And after about a year, he got kind of tired of it. And then I had to decide whether or not I was going to continue doing a Beatles show at all, because I had really gotten used to having him there. And um, this was a year or so after I already graduated college. And some college radio stations, actually many, like to have their alumni there still on the air. So I was fortunate they, they still wanted to, to have me there on the radio station, even though I wasn't a student anymore. But um, a friend of mine in the business recommended that I, I send a tape to a rock station in northern New Jersey, WDHA. And I did that. And they took my show. Actually, the funny thing is, and I still remember this very well, because I got a letter in the mail, an old-fashioned letter, typewritten and everything, with whiteout on it. And um, the program director of the radio station said, I, I like your tape, but we're thinking about having a Motown show here. Would you be interested in doing that? And I called him up and I said, you know, I love Motown, but I'm not an expert on Motown. I know the hits, but... I really love doing a Beatles show. So then I met with him, and he said, uh, we'll start you on Sunday mornings. My show was on for two hours in the very beginning, 8 in the morning till 10. Uh, not long after that, it was expanded to a three-hour show from 7 to 10. And it was there that I really developed my show. Mm -hmm. And this and was the All Request Beatles show. The All Request Beatles show, which later became Every Little Thing. But... There's never been a period in my broadcasting career as intense as the 10 years that I did my show at this radio station in New Jersey because they gave me almost complete freedom to do anything I wanted to do. And I played anything from the group and solo catalog. I played, um, you know, cover versions of Beatles songs. I played songs that the Beatles wrote for other people, songs they produced for other people, songs they played on for other people, tribute songs. Uh, novelty records on the Beatles, uh, some bootleg recordings. I mean, we're talking about 1983 through 93. I played a lot of BBC material mm -hmm. before it was officially released. Mm -hmm. I did a lot of uh, very interesting and creative things. I had thematic sets every single week and not your typical sets like love songs or rockers. Mm -hmm. I would do things like songs that feature Paul on drums songs that feature uh, Eric Clapton on it, songs that feature Elton John on it, songs that have John on lead guitar, um, the Beatles covering Chuck Berry, you know, all kinds of different things in the show. I even did shows on the Lost Lennon Tapes radio series uh, because the radio station, WDHA, we carried that series for the full run for four years and we actually ran it at 6 o'clock in the morning before my show. So we had four hours of programming Beatles at the time on a New Jersey rock station. And um, in addition to all these thematic sets, I had news every single week because I didn't really want the Beatles to be thought of as pure nostalgia. Mm -hmm. And there's so much news every single week that most people aren't even aware of, of what's going on. And I also played interviews. I had guest people there to be interviewed. I had well over two dozen 
different forms of Beatle games and trivia that I put on my show. And if you look at my website now, KenMichaelsRadio.com, there's a Beatles trivia and games page. That's pretty much what I've been doing for the last 38 years with, with every little thing. Um, it's very similar. So many different types of games, so many different angles of looking at the Beatles, the group and the solo careers, knowing their music, knowing their lyrics, knowing their history. Um, every single aspect about the Beatles is covered in that show and in the trivia. And I also managed to get prizes to give away myself on the show. I arranged a local record store to give me things to give away. So, you know, I was extremely involved week by week with that show, uh, putting together a three-hour show and uh, offering lots of information about the music. It was a combination of hits that everybody knows and deeper cuts. And it was a thrill for me, as it still is all these years, to mix all that music together and to treat it as one catalog, which is really what I do. I don't like when the Beatles are thought of strictly as a group up to 1970, and that's it, and that's the Beatles. There's so no. much more. <laughs> that's it. I mean, 80% of their output is solo music now. Oh, yeah. And not that I believe that 80% of what you hear on a Beatles radio show should be solo music, but it should be more 50-50 at this point. I mean, come on. <laughs> it's not only the fact that there's that much solo music, but the Beatles really had more success as solo artists than any solo artist from a previous band, which a lot of people don't even know. A lot of young fans who are just getting into the Beatles aren't aware of the success that they had on their own. And even, I'm surprised, a lot of people who grew up with the Beatles who are first-generation fans were not as affected by the success that they had on their own. But it's mind-boggling how well they did, especially in the United States, with hit singles and, and uh, you know, successful albums, too. What kind of prizes were you giving away in them early days? All kinds of stuff. Albums, singles, import uh, stuff. You know, Paul McCartney in particular would be well known for putting out import CD singles for, uh, you know, songs from Flowers in the Dirt or Off the Ground or 12-inch records. You know, for some of the mixes from press to play, that kind of stuff. A lot of what was, you know, anything considered um, what could be a collector's item, which I never really cared all that much about. I was always mainly into the music. But I would give away any album or any single. Once in a while, Capitol Records would send albums for me to give away. And, you know, eventually it became CDs. But I even remember giving away vinyl back then which is not an oddity these days because vinyl has made some sort of comeback but is you know anything that you could find in your local record store um that catered to more than just a casual fan if you heard about something that was only available as an import and there would be some record store in your town that carried that kind of stuff you know, or the kind of thing that would be put out now on Record Store Day. <laughs> Limited edition versions of a single, that kind of stuff. Um, and I had people calling me up every single week trying to win. And you had to to know your Beatles trivia. I'm still I trying to win trivia stuff. <laughs> 
you just started, Ethan. <laughs> that is so, uh, that is true. <laughs> yeah, so I, I'm sure at some point, very soon, you'll probably win something. But um, but as you can see, if you look at the trivia that I do on my website, it really is very similar to what I was doing on the air. Every single week, by the way, when I was on WDHA, I had what I call the super montage, where I had 10 songs that were all put together as a montage, snippets of different songs, Beatles and solo songs. And you had to name, I think, uh, eight in order to win one prize. And if you got nine of the 10, you got two prizes. And if you got all 10, you got all three prizes. And it drove people crazy. You know, to listen to these collages and they'd get some of them and it, I'm sure a lot of people recorded that stuff and played it back over and over and over again. And once in a while I do that on, on the website. Um, I have a mini collage instead. But um, yeah, I was doing all sorts of crazy things uh, on my show. I was developing all this trivia, all these different games during those 10 years. And um, it was the, the best training ground. I mean, the radio station, I went through five different program directors in 10 years. And they pretty much let me do almost anything I wanted to do. Um, and, and that was about it. I even played family members of the Beatles. You know, Julian Lennon. Uh, in 1984, he debuted with a lot. <laughs> From that moment on, I was playing Julian Lennon music mixed in with Beatles, you know. To, sh to show support for Julian. So any of those elements made it a very unique show. It was an anything goes program and anybody could request any song and get it heard. And uh, unlike how restrictive terrestrial radio has become, my show was given, you know, carte blanche, whatever I really wanted to do with it. And for that, I'm very grateful. I turned a lot of people onto this music, young people, and also a lot of people onto not only the group, but the solo stuff. Uh, do you have any particular favorite memories from that, uh, you called it the most intense decade, uh, 83 to 93? Sure. I did a Beatles BBC A to Z show. And that was a very nerve-wracking program because I collected a lot of the BBC stuff at the time in various forms. Mm -hmm. I had it. These were all bootlegs then. Mm -hmm. I had them on vinyl. Would I had some been, songs. Uh, the Beatles at the Beeb? Or... Yeah. Yeah. Um, all the songs they did on BBC Radio, I did them alphabetically. And for songs that they did more than one version of, or one performance of, I only played one of them. <laughs> so, but I did them all in alphabetical order. One of the big things in America, once in a while, they would do a Beatles A to Z weekend on rock radio, but it would always be the core catalog, <laughs> you know, from Love Me Do through Let It Be, you know, those songs. But I did a BBC one. And so since I had that music at the time on a combination of vinyl i had some songs on cassette i had some songs on reel to reel and you know on cassette it's it's really tough to queue up real tight <laughs> uh to play on the air um and it was nerve-wracking running around the radio station you know playing these songs in different formats but um that was very interesting with the lost lennon tapes i would do 
uh, specials like the alternate Imagine album, the alternate Mind Games album, and the alternate Walls and Bridges album, that kind of stuff where you took every single song from those albums, but you played an alternate take of those songs. And there are people who have bootlegged that kind of thing. That concept of a different take of every song in the same order as it appeared on the John Lennon albums, you know, that kind of thing stood out. But, you know, all the weird thematic sets that I did, um, I put together a, what I call the well montage. Oh, a I well played montage. this. Yes. The Beatles use the word well quite a lot in their songs, the group and the solo. And I put together a collage of something like. I think it was 38 songs and I had a contest where people had to name all of them and it ran for several weeks. And so people had to record it off the radio and some of those songs were easy to figure out. Some of them you had to know the solo music. You had to know deeper cuts and I got a great response for that. That was an insane thing to do. Um, I also had a a game, which I'm not going to tell you what it's about, because at some point I'm probably going to do this on my website, the Revolution Number Nine game, which was the weirdest game of all of them. But um, yeah, I did all kinds of wacky stuff during. Okay, those now you're years. just taunting me because I want to know what the Revolution Nine game is. <laughs> well, it's like maybe yeah, if I forced, make the... you're forced to listen to Revolution Nine. That's the game. Oh no, it's more than that. <laughs> No, but I, I promise you that at some point, probably this year, if I have the guts to do it, I will post that on my website and do not the same one that I did in the DHA days. I'll create a brand new one. But it, it's definitely the weirdest thing that I've ever done on the air was that game. But the Well Montage was really cool. And I even have one listener of mine today who dates back to those days who asked me to play that because I, you know, I still do my show live <laughs> on a, a station in Connecticut, WNHU. Unfortunately, since the coronavirus, all the live broadcasting has been preempted. Um, it's all automated right now. But when I get back on the air, you know, I, I'm on Wednesday nights there doing a one hour version of every little thing. But he does request that collage of mine. And I really should make a brand new one and update it because I'm sure there's more songs I can come up with that have well in them. I mean, there's you know, it started more with songs with the word well that have come out since you made the original. Which which song are you talking about? Oh, no, you said wor- songs with the words well. Yeah, like the beginning of um, Long Haired Lady. <laughs> you know, or John just saying well at the beginning of Bebopalula. You know, that kind of thing. So there was something like, it was either 36 or 38 songs where I used the word well. How long did it take for someone to win? It was something like a month, like three or four weeks. Yeah. (laughs) A month. Wow. I'm surprised someone did it that fast. Well, you know, if you can record it on your own, in those days it would have been on cassette then you play it over and over again. And if you really know the music and the key thing is to know the solo stuff too, because, um, you know, then you have an edge over all the people who basically just know the group (laughs) music. So, um, yeah, but I got a tremendous response for that. 
you know, that was that was definitely the weirdest thing I probably ever did. So in I hadn't even thought about that until just now, but that's a good memory. <laughs> so in your uh, time doing all these Beatles shows, you've done a lot of uh, really top quality interviews. Uh who was the first person you got to interview that really kind of made your jaw drop that you're thinking, I'm interviewing this person? Jaw drop? Huh. Well, I know um, you've interviewed I'd... Ringo. and I've Ringo. interviewed Ringo three times, and there's nothing quite like interviewing Ringo or I hope someday Paul. Um, even though um, two of the three interviews were fairly short, um, I'm just so grateful that I got any of these interviews. So just the fact that they spoke, any of them spoke to me, that Ringo spoke to me, um, that alone. Uh, and the fact that, and I bring this up because th this interview is on my website. I did an interview with Ringo when Postcards from Paradise came out. And I was talking mainly about his songwriting. And he was very excited that I talked about that. I always bring up his songwriting because nobody else does. Everybody talks about his Beatle days. Everybody talks about possibly his drumming. And then they're kind of forced to talk about the new album. And that's a Ringo interview for the most part. But I really wanted to know more about his songwriting because ever since his album Vertical Man, he's co-written almost every song on his albums. And then he's also, you know, he wrote songs in the 70s with Vinnie Poncia and, of course, a few songs with George Harrison, with Joe Walsh. But I, I think... Just the fact that he enjoyed that short talk that I had with him about his songwriting, that is a big highlight for me. But um, definitely, if, if I was to talk about my favorite interviews, I'd have to say um, Mark Lewison is a total joy to talk to. I, I said to him before, because sometimes I like to listen to interviews with him online and every time i listen to any interview with mark i learn something that i never heard before uh and that's rare and um he's just so knowledgeable and i got to interview him before his book tune in came out and there were lots of revelations in that book and he was telling me about some of them before the book even came out so any interview with mark is a good interview there's I'm no still... way you can have a I'm still holding out hope that someday I'll be able to get him on here. Well, we'll see. He's, he's done a lot of interviews online. You know, he's, he's um, very familiar with lots of the Beatle podcasts that are out there. Um, definitely the Wings guys. Denny Sywell is a joy to talk to. He's got a very sharp memory for what had happened, you know, almost 50 years ago. And you're not just talking about the beginning of Wings, but he was also there for Ram. Uh, Lawrence Juber is always great to talk to. Steve Holly, a lot of the people in the Lennon camp. Elliot Mintz is a total joy to talk to. Such a professional. I never feel like there's anything that I can't ask uh, about John with him. Some of the people that were involved with Above Us Only Sky, I got to interview the director, Michael Epstein. Um... You know, John, John and Yoko's assistant, uh, Dan Richter, I got to interview as well. You know, some of those people, just look at who's on my website. And, um, you know, I interviewed, even though it's not somebody that you think of when it comes to the Beatles, um, Jimmy Webb, who is one of the, the great songwriters of all time to me. He wrote a lot of hits, the key hits 
that really started Glenn Campbell's career, as well as songs like MacArthur Park and um, All I Know for Art Garfunkel. And he was very close to Harry Nilsson and got to spend time with, uh, with Ringo and John. And I did an interview with him with the angle of talking about the Beatles. And also him being a great songwriter, what works he admires by the Beatles. Something like that, you know. There's so much that's on my website, and I can just guarantee you that I will regret so many names that I won't mention, um, you know, in this interview. I actually should look at my website right now because I don't want to forget any that I thought were really great. Um, you know, I'm, I just feel very privi privileged to have interviewed so many people through my career. And um, Carl Perkins is another one that I've interviewed a few times. He was, you know, probably the nicest person I, I've ever interviewed in my life because he made you feel like, you know, you're gold. If all you knew was blue suede shoes from him, he'd make you feel like you were a king. He was that nice. He was appreciative that you were interested in him. Uh, Billy J. Kramer, I've interviewed a number of times. Peter Asher was a joy to talk to. He's always a joy to talk to. Um, he, actually, I've interviewed Peter and Gordon together. Um, At the same and, time? Yeah. There was um, a benefit concert from Mike Smith. The Dave Clark former Clark. lead singer, sure, at BB King's in New York City, and at the time I was working at XM Radio, where I was doing my show, Every Little Thing, and I also had short features that were heard on their '60s channel, the '60s on Six, and I was one of the MCs representing XM Radio at the time uh, for the show for for Mike Smith and Peter and Gordon performed there. It was their first concert in something like it was over 35 years. And they continued to do concerts after that show. So some of the people that were scheduled to um, perform that night for Mike Smith, I got to interview. And Peter and Gordon was one of them. Denny Lane, who I've interviewed several times. Billy J. Kramer was another one. Um, and and these interviews are on my website, too. So, um, you know, a to lot of To all my listeners people. out there, go to his website. It is like a who's who of... Uh, the Beatles, and it's full of just some really great interviews. Gary Van Syok, who was in Elephant's Memory, um, the bass player there, he's a great person to talk to. Um, Julian Lennon, I interviewed when um, Everything Changes was released. That was his last studio album. He was great. He's wonderful to talk to. Um, so many great Beatles authors. You know, um, Jim Birkenstadt wrote a book on Jimmy Nickel. Um, Chuck Gunderson. Yeah. Chuck Gunderson, who wrote Some Fun Tonight, which is everything you'd ever want to know about the Beatles tours of the U.S. Fantastic um, book. I know. It's, it's the Bible. It really is. I just interviewed Chip Mattinger and Mark Easter who wrote Eight Arms to Hold You, which I like to call, that's another Bible. It's the ultimate reference book on the solo careers of the Beatles up through the year 2000. And it covers everything. It really does. The studio releases, the live releases, 
uh, film appearances, TV appearances, what's on bootleg, even stuff that's not on bootleg. Paul's classical work, the stuff that was in the Lost Lennon tapes. And then for that matter, Paul had his radio series called Ubu Jubu. That's covered in the book. It's got the set list for all of the concerts um, <clears throat> that the Beatles did in their solo careers through 2000. All the Wings tours, for example. Um, you know, it, it's, it's incredible, that book. And I just did an interview with them. Um, Ken Womack, who you know because I do the show Talk More Talk with him. Um, he might be coming back as like a, a regular or semi-regular very soon. Um, some of the people that I do my podcast with, like Alan Cozen, who is a tremendous speaker. He's written a few books on the Beatles as well. Um, Al Sussman from Beatle Fan Magazine. Uh, you know, just had a Al on a couple weeks ago, I think. Yeah, I interviewed Pierce Hemmingson, who I know you interviewed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's really a lot of great people. Kid O'Toole, <laughs> you know, I, I talk to her every single week, and I've interviewed her several times. That's on my website. Um, you know, just check out the website and look at all the different pages. Jerry Hammack is another one. He's put out a series of books called The Beatles Recording Reference Manuals. And it takes you step by step with what the Beatles did in the studio with each song. And it does it song by song, as opposed to the Beatles recording sessions by Mark Lewison, which, you know, the difference is Mark does it day by day, what the Beatles did in the studio day by day, even if they worked on five different songs in the same day. With Jerry, it's more song by song, the dates for each song, what each Beatle played, what amps were used, you know, how it appeared uh, as a multi-track recording, you know, whether it was four track or eight track, what appeared on each track. Ken, uh, I haven't was... been able to find a copy of these books and you're making me salivate. <laughs> well, you can win them on my website. I've been trying. <laughs> like I said, eventually, uh, you know, it'll happen. I've interviewed two of Harry Nilsson's sons. Uh, Zach Nilsson and Kifo Nilsson. And I've interviewed Jack Douglas, who, you know, co-produced um, Double Fantasy, worked with John going as far back as the Imagine album. Mm-hmm. Neil Innes. Oh, my God. Oh, it, God. He was such a riot to talk to. I can't believe he's gone. Yeah. What a sense of humor he has um, had. But he, he was great. You just had John Montagna as a guest. I've interviewed him. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of great people. I had a ride of a time with him. <laughs> I can bet. All right. So I'm, I want to ask you, what do the Beatles mean to you? Wow. Um, the Beatles influenced me in the way that I judge music in general. Um, they represent when you combine the group and the solo catalog, the greatest catalog of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I look at John, Paul, and George as being three of the greatest songwriters of all time. Mm-hmm. And I say that not just because of what they did in the band, but what they continued to do in their solo careers. But um, I will tell you, and I hope I can say this concisely, that there's two ways that the Beatles really influenced and shaped the way that I think about pretty much everything when it comes to music to be fair you don't have to say it concisely (laughs) well 
first of all, I'm very much a song man. I think that the most important part of a of a recording is the song itself. <laughs> Nothing is more important than how good the song is. And as much as the Beatles brought so much to their own recordings, and George Martin brought so much, and the different engineers brought so much, the song is, to me, it, it's 90% of the recording. Paul McCartney can give you the greatest bass line George Harrison can give you the most memorable guitar solo. Ringo can give you very inventive drum fills. And John could deliver something great on guitar. Or, you know, they all could do tremendous harmonies on their songs. But if the songs weren't that good, it wouldn't matter at all. <laughs> and there's one time only when I got to talk to George Martin. This was a phone interview that I did with a friend of mine who arranged it. And I knew that my friend was going to dominate the conversation. So I just made sure that I had a few things that I wanted to say to George Martin. And one thing that was very important for me to say was, I can't imagine what a song like Strawberry Fields Forever would have sounded like if any other producer had worked on it. And without any hesitation, he came right back and said to me, Strawberry Fields Forever was a great song before I had anything to do with it. So, you know, my first reaction to that was, you're being awfully modest here. But if you think about it, he's right. Strawberry Fields is a great song. Regardless of the finished product, if the Beatles put out Take One of Strawberry Fields, I would love that version. If they put out Take Seven of Strawberry Fields, I would love that version. I love the finished version more but I still would love the other versions. The song is the single most important part of the recording, without a doubt. And the reason why the Beatles music, one of the reasons anyway, why it's endured all these years is because it's great material. And it explains why so many people have covered their songs because the songs are good songs. Beatles songs go from good to great. <laughs> I would never call any Beatles song a bad song, you know, at the very least. A Beatles song is a good song. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking about Her Majesty or Wild Honey Pie. I'm talking about complete songs. Mm -hmm. You know? So that's the way that I think when it comes to songs. And the reason why I'm so supportive of the Beatles as solo artists is John, Paul, and George as songwriters never stopped writing great songs. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I happen to like the different musicians that they worked with and the different producers they worked with. The songs come first. If you want to make the analysis that what the Beatles brought to their own songs made all the difference, well, that's a whole debate to itself. But to me, the Beatles never lost anything as solo artists when it came to the material that they wrote on their own. Yeah, you can always say there's certain Beatles songs that are better than some solo songs. There are some solo songs that are better than some Beatles songs. You know, it's just... It's the same three main songwriters. And for the last, you know, what are we talking here? Almost 25 years, Ringo has been very involved with the songwriting. I would never put him in the same category as the other three, but at least he got on board as the songwriter. And quite a lot of his material, I think, is very strong. Mm 
So, you know, that's why I'm very supportive of the solo music of the Beatles, because I really believe that they're great songs first. And I do like the work that they do as producers. And I like their choices of people that they work with in the studio for musicians. It's never a question of what's better. It's only a question of, do I really enjoy the music? And when it comes to the solo music of the Beatles, I love it just as much as what they did as a band. So that's one way that the Beatles have influenced me. It was something that I felt all along about the importance of the song first, but I think George Martin saying it really asserted that opinion for me. And the other thing is something that John Lennon said when he was interviewed by David Wigg in 1971, where he was pretty much saying, uh, you know, the reason why the Beatles broke up is, is because they were limiting their capacity to write and perform because they had to fit it into some kind of format. I do believe that the group, not just the Beatles, this could apply to any group that split up and had solo careers. The group is not always better than the solo. Mm -hmm. There are benefits to both. There's nothing like the chemistry of having a band when they're clicking together. And then I also happen to love the freedom that an artist has to work with different people and to grow and expand, which I believe you do when you work with different people, as opposed to always working with the same people on every single album. And even though the Beatles had more freedom than probably any other band, and they deserved it because of their commercial success, you can get stale as a band if you work with the same people. And it never was all that fair as George Harrison was flourishing as a songwriter to limit him to two songs per Beatle album, or for that matter, Ringo for one song. So, um, you know, it, because John said that, it made me really think that way. I don't necessarily think group is better than solo. And this is coming from someone who truly, truly loves and appreciates what the Beatles did as a band. I admire them more for making it on their own and having all the success that they had. Because like I've said many times, lightning struck twice for the Beatles. Mm -hmm. um, if you take a look at the chart success that they had on their own, nobody else compares to that. You'll never find any other band where each individual member had the kind of commercial success that the Beatles had on their own. So, you know, those two factors right there, the song is always the most important thing. And I love the group and the solo equally, you know, and I look at the benefits on both sides of working together as a, you know, as a unit and also to have the freedom to work on your own. And, um, you know, John said a lot of things in that interview, which I really agree with. And it was at a time when I think he was at his angriest. <laughs> and John changed his opinion quite a lot. And there's a lot of things John has said that I don't agree with. But I agree with a lot of what he said in this interview. And, um, you know, he said the problem is the world won't accept change. And it's true. <laughs> a lot of people didn't want to accept the fact that the Beatles broke up. Yeah. But they went on and they lived and and flourished on their own so and that's kind of how i feel that's those two factors right there really influence and shape the way that i think 
I don't even know what to add. He, <laughs> you, you just hit the fucking nail on the head there. Well, I don't expect everyone in the world to agree with me. I don't know if you do, but um, you know, it's it's tough for me to say this sometimes because, you know, the the Beatles catalog is the most cherished catalog, probably of all time, and it deserves to be. And I love every single you know, aspect of what the Beatles did as a band. But, you know, the breakup was the most natural thing to happen. I've never looked at it as being, you know, uh, I, what's the word? Um, you know, it wasn't a tragedy. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, what I remember when John Lennon was murdered, that was a tragedy. Yes. You know, we lost one of the greatest artists of all time. We didn't lose a Beatle. We lost a great artist first who started in the Beatles, you know, and um, the same thing with losing George way too young. Those are those are tragedies to me. Um, If you can manage to make it on your own. And nobody has ever been able to have the kind of success where each individual member on their own had hit singles and hit albums. You can't. (laughs) <laughs> and a lot of people who are growing up today discovering the Beatles, and I'm grateful that they are, they're not aware of that. Mm-hmm. So so I love to, you know, expose people to all the music and in the podcast shows to talk about all the music, group and solo. I'm going to hit you with some quick fire questions. Okay. Uh, since a lot or... You've been doing Beatles trivia since you, or since nearly when you started your show. Um, what's your favorite weird piece of Beatles trivia? Favorite weird piece. Um, hmm. Well, you know, this is something that other other people have done before. I just call the game "Think for Yourself." I mentioned the titles of four Beatles songs or solo Beatles songs. And they have some unique feature about them. And you have to figure out what that is. And it's never anything really simple like John saying lead on all four. It can't be anything that simple. Um, let me think. I've done something where I've, uh, I used to do something called Backwards Traveler. Where I played a song backwards for a few seconds and you had to try and figure out what song that was i have a game called the word where i just pick one very unique word which you can find in the lyrics of a song beatles or solo and you have to figure out what that is like one i just did on my website which i think you entered this one i did the the word preamble what beatles song or solo beatles song contains that word um, it was, oh, I'm not going to say the answer because the concert or contest isn't over yet. Yeah, it is. It's oh. over. Oh, well, and plus this will be uploaded way after it ended. Stranglehold. There you go. Off of the press. press to play. Yeah. So doing something like that, I like doing all the different collages and having people figure that out. Um, I like doing... There's a game that I play where I just put the first letter of each word 
in the title of a song and you have to figure out what the title is. You know, like B-O-T-R is Ben on the Run, <laughs> that kind of thing. And, you know, hopefully when people play this, they don't Google anything. I hope. <laughs> you know, or I'll say something like, name all the songs or name uh, seven songs, Beatles or Solo, that have the word life in the title. Do you want me to? <laughs> if you can. Okay, Day in the Life. Oh, God. <laughs> Oh, I, I, I just embarrassed myself. Well, when you have to think of it on the spot, it's not easy. Yeah. You want me to name some? Sure. <laughs> uh, in my life, run for your life. Oh, you've got to be fucking, how did I miss those? Got to get you into my life. Life itself from George Harrison. What is life? Life begins at fir- uh, at forty. Um, uh, what's the song from? What's my name? Life is good from Ringo. Um, Sunshine life for me. That should cover it. <laughs> Looking for my life from George Harrison. You know that kind of thing where people have to really think about it. This has been humbling. <laughs> Well, trivia is what it is. It's trivial, you know, and it's a fun thing. And if it gets you thinking, um, you know, it stimulates the brain. So, uh, you know, here's something. Why don't you just name two songs for me where the title is nowhere in the lyrics of the song? Okay, that is... um... technically being for the benefit of mr kite that's true i'll accept that there's no being right uh the inner light good and uh wild honey pie they don't say wild okay (laughs) that's two okay well that's okay that's good i'm just thinking right now you know i'll throw a few out but tomorrow never knows. Oh, obviously, that's like oh, th- that's my favorite song, <laughs> and it just completely escaped me. Oh. Um, well, the ballad of John and Yoko. That is true. Uh, Run of the Mill from George Harrison is another one that's like that. <laughs> so yeah, there there's a handful of them. So I like throwing those kind of questions out. I answer with technicalities. All right. <laughs> I'm going to hit you with some more. What is, and you don't have to just pick one because this has always been a sensitive subject for people. What is your favorite Beatles song? That could change from day to day. <laughs> uh, but for several years now, it has remained Hey Jude. And you've been mentioning the solo Beatles a lot. What's your favorite solo song from each of the four? From John, Woman. From Paul, it's really a tie. Um, it's it's either 1985 mm-hmm. or Only Love Remains, which I think is his greatest ballad in his solo career. Uh, from George, another ballad, I Love That Is All. 
Um, it's one of the greatest love songs ever, too. I think it's just as great as something. <laughs> and with Ringo, it's got to be a tie between Photograph and Six O'Clock. Any comments on those? Are you surprised? Oh. No, I'm not surprised. <laughs> okay. Uh, those are good choices. <laughs> yeah. I was just thinking about what mine were, because I don't think I've ever thought about that before. Those are easy for me. Do you have... We already kind of touched on this earlier. Do you have a least favorite song? Well, group probably, I, I would say Dig a Pony. <laughs> What's your um, least favorite from each of the four? Uh, from John, at this point, probably Angela from Sometime in New York City. Mm -hmm. Although there is one thing I do like about that song, and I like the way that John and Yoko's vocals blend mm -hmm. in terms of their harmonies on it. Um, Paul. Geez. I would have gone for the Newtopian National Anthem. That's a perfect recording. It's flawless. There's nothing you could say bad about it. That is true. Really needs to be remastered more, though, I think. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, Why does that sound like something out of Spinal Tap? Uh, Paul. I'd probably say uh, there's a song from Memory Almost Full called Gratitude, which I've never liked. Um, and yet I like every song on that album except that song. Um but is that my least favorite? I don't know. Um, a song like Nobody Knows from McCartney 2 sounds like something he just slapped together and did on the spot. The only and there are people who thing, like that kind of thing. The only redeemable thing to me about the song Gratitude is that some say if you play it backwards, there's another Paul is Dead clue. <laughs> well, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> uh, George... Of his, well, traditional music, as opposed to electronic sound or something like that. Um, probably his name is Legs. And even then, I don't really dislike the song from Extra Texture. I really like all of Wonderwall music. Um, I would probably say his name is Legs. And from Ringo... Not a fan hmm. of that one either, which is sad, because I really like who the song's about, Legs Larry Smith. Yeah, you know, it's um, it's also a song, at least that particular song wasn't mixed very well. Mm -hmm. It just has a very flat sound to it. And his vocals should have been up hotter, George's vocals. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Ringo, I've always disliked his cover of Where Did Our Love Go from Bad Boy. Um. I like all the other songs on Bad Boy, but I don't like Where Did Our Love Go, what he did with that. So those would be my least favorite. Do you have a favorite Beatles album right now? Uh, for years, I've been saying Abbey Road. I might be leaning more towards the White Album these days. Really? Yeah. Disappointed at no mention of Revolver, but... Revolver is a stunning piece of work, and I love it more now than I ever have before. And when it comes to an album that I would just grab to play in the car, if I'm going to go for a ride, Revolver or the White Album would be it. 
right now. Although I am listening right now to a lot of outtakes of Abbey Road and remix stuff, so I'm in an Abbey Road mood. But um, I love the White Album a lot because of the extreme diversity of the music. <laughs> I'm very much into that. Anytime an artist can do more than just do rockers and ballads, and the Beatles explored so many different musical styles, and they did that also in their solo careers. I mean, to me, McCartney is probably the most versatile artist we've ever had. I in mean, terms to of me, all the... for any other band to have like Piggies, Happiness is a Warm Gun, Honey Pie, and Good Night on the same album, someone would probably die from the whiplash that it would cause. <laughs> For the but, same songwriter to write Helter Skelter and write Honey Pie in the same breath, <laughs> you know, that's so extraordinary. And to have Revolution Number 9 on the same piece of work, yeah. you know, it's it's just so varied, the White Album. And there's no other album where you can say that about, with the exception of maybe some of McCartney's uh, solo albums. Because he really stretches in all the different styles that he, that he um, explores. What are your four favorite of uh, the solo albums? Okay. John is Mind Games. It could very well be because it's the least appreciated of all of his good albums. Um, I do feel it's just as good Thank as... Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Someone said it. Oh, God. That album is you... beautiful. You know, we, we did a show on Things We Said Today... This is back when Al, Al Sussman, was on the show. And when it came to mentioning our favorite albums from each of them solo, um, most of us said Mind Games. And I was stunned because I thought I'd be the only one saying it. But, you know, I love every song on Mind Games. Uh, maybe Only People sounds a bit too forced and too commercial. But, you know, any album that's got Out the Blue on it, and, and I know, I know, and the title track to Mind Games I mean, and Intuition. Meet City you know, is in my top five John Lennon songs. That's a great rocker. Oh, it's it, awesome. It really is. You know, I just don't like the impression that people have been given of that period when John was away from Yoko, his lost weekend period, and they kind of group mind games and walls and bridges together even john himself said that his best work was plastic ono band imagine and then double fantasy and i don't agree with john there at all and i do think that imagine's a masterpiece and so is plastic ono band but um mind games and walls and bridges are both great albums too i never get tired of mind games because Nobody ever plays the stuff on the radio <laughs> from Mind Games. And so to hear anything like Intuition, You Are Here is a gorgeous song. I um, once heard Out of the Blue on the Beatles Sirius XM channel, and I got very happy. Well, you need to listen to every little thing, because if you did that, then you definitely hear stuff from Mind Games in there. Because I've been doing, I've been playing songs from Mind Games all these years. Um, and by the way, it's Out the Blue. It's not out of the blue. <laughs> I'm just letting you know, there is an instrumental from George Harrison, which is on the Apple Jam album called Out of the Blue. If you're just tuning in, this is the most humbling episode of Fans <laughs> on the Run yet. <laughs> I'm going to put you on know, my dunce cap after this. Uh, that's okay. 
So, um, so yeah, Mind Games, my favorite John album, my favorite Paul album has become Flowers in the Dirt. I love every single song on there. And there you go. Diversity. A lot of different styles all throughout that album and done so well. And I really love Paul's writing with Elvis Costello, um, as well as with Eric Stewart on Press to Play and with Denny Lane and Wings. Um, but Flowers of the Dirt is my favorite Paul album. My favorite George album is my favorite album of all time from anybody. And that's living in the material world. Um, without a doubt, you know, they are the most, to me, personal songs that George wrote. I love his spirituality, songs like Be Here Now and um, The Light That Has Lighted the World and Who Can See It and those songs are you know amongst the most personal songs kind of the equivalent of you know how personal plastic on band was to john mm -hmm. but done george george's way um no doubt about it all things must pass is a tremendous tremendous album one of the greatest albums of all time it's just that living in the material world touched me more with the songs themselves mm -hmm. um and from ringo <laughs> It really is a tie at this point between the Ringo album and Time Takes Time. That Time Takes Time, that whole album is severely underrated. Mm, I agree. My favorite Ringo song is Weight of the World. So that's, that's a great song. That's one of those songs where, you know, after Ringo had his string of hits through the No-No song, <clears throat> that was 1975, and then his career severely dipped you know, he could never regain what he once had after that. If Weight of the World had been like the follow-up <laughs> to the No-No song, as much as I love a dose of rock and roll, I think if, if Weight of the World had come out in 1975 or 76, I think that would have been a big hit when radio, Top 40 radio, was playing Ringo. Even though it was written by uh, two of the band members from the band Jellyfish, I mm -hmm. feel like it would have fit in on a Beatles album. There's a lot of solo music that's very Beatlesque. Mm -hmm. It's just going to happen. Well, that'll te it, that tends to happen when you've got Beatles. That's true, but there are times when it's intentional. Mm -hmm. Like there's another song that has Jellyfish on there, I don't believe you. Mm -hmm. On Time Takes Time, which is very much like a 1965 Beatles song that Ringo would sing lead to. It's like a what goes on <laughs> for that album. That's how I kind of look at it. And now we're going to flip to the other side of that coin. Do you have a least favorite Beatles album? <sighs> and God. keep in mind, they're, they're the Beatles all... ranked from good to great. So yeah. they're not bad albums, but your the, if... least favorite. Do you count Yellow Submarine? Sure. I mean, the original Yellow Submarine yeah. with half George Martin music. Yeah. Well, then it's easy. As much as I love the George Martin music. Yeah. You know, I prefer to hear the Beatles music and all new songs. Then I'd have to say that if it's all original Beatles songs. Oh, God. They're all. Maybe Let It Be. Correct answer. And, and then, you know, the, the songs on Let It Be are great. It would be a greater album if there were a few more songs. Mm -hmm. um, to me, it would have been a greater album if Phil Spector had stayed away from it. 
Oh, uh, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You wanted more Phil Spector? No. That's where we disagree. You wanted more Phil Spector. Well, no, but what he did on that album, I totally approve of. You know, I, I really am a major fan of his work with The Long and Winding Road, and I realize how controversial that subject is these days, but I think that, you know, it couldn't stand by itself as just the recording that was on Let It Be Naked. Well, it I'm not a big have... fan of Let It Be Naked either. Mm -hmm. I, I prefer the original, just plain old Glenn Johns mix. It still lacks something. It lacks a presence. It does need an orchestra, I believe. Well, to me, Maybe you... um, the long and winding road doesn't really factor into it, because I avoid listening to that song at all costs, no matter what the version. You don't like the song? No. Oh, okay. That might be, a, con that might be a controversial statement. <laughs> That's definitely in my top five of Beatles songs, the long and winding road. And I really do love the arrangement that was done for that song. Um, everything that was added to it, you know, the orchestration, the harp, the background vocals. You know, I think some fans may feel that had George Martin done the production for it, it would have been more restrained, you know, and maybe people prefer that more. I have no problem with people feeling that way. I never had a problem with um, the orchestration on Good Night. I think that was perfect for a song like that. I never hear people complaining about that. I think just the mere fact that people are aware of the fact that Paul really didn't like what Phil Spector did, um, they take sides on this issue. And I am a firm believer that if a song was a hit record and it performed well, you should respect that. And The Long and Winding Road was a number one hit. Means the public liked it the way that it came out. But The Long and Winding Road is one of those songs for me, unlike you, where I like every version that's come out that Paul's done of the song. I think it's I might like... have a personal bias, though, because that was uh, the first song that came on the radio after I had heard that my dad had died. So I feel like it's kind of soured that for me. Mm. Well, that's possible. People associate songs with memories. Mm -hmm. It's a very common thing. So, but I wouldn't take it out on the song. You know, otherwise I wouldn't like any songs from Double Fantasy. Yeah. I mean, I would fair, associate that. You know. To be fair, I didn't like the song in the first place. It's just having it come on right after my dad died, like, didn't really help its case. Mm. Yep. All right. I know what you're saying, yeah. but, you know, I, I really love that version of The Long and Winding Road. And I like what Phil Spector did, adding another verse to I Me Mine. I do like the version of Across the Universe mm -hmm. that's on that album. And he really didn't do too much to let it be. I mean, to be fair, that's what I think is also so great about the Beatles. Um, everyone has a different perspective on them. Mm-hmm. Well, like I said, there's nothing more important than the song first. Mm -hmm. So if the song is a great song, which I believe The Long and Winding Road to be, mm -hmm. you really can't destroy it. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's the main thing. And to me, what Phil Spector brought to it and all the different arrangements that Paul 
has done in his solo career, um, I love all of them because the song is a great song first. What are your least favorite uh, solo Beatles albums? <laughs> You're covering everything in this interview, aren't you? Oh, well, let me think. we've talked a lot about the solo stuff, so I feel like I, I'd ask more about the solo stuff. Okay. So you're talking about not compilations or anything like that. I mean, if you're and... having a hard time picking, compilations can be allowed in dire circumstances. No, because they're not real albums. No, I you know. know. And, and I'm not going to count uh, the John and Yoko, Two Virgins, Life with the Lion stuff. Um, and then, well, Live Peace in Toronto only has one side of John singing lead. You know, but if you're talking about studio albums, probably sometime in New York City. But yet, I like all of John's songs and most of Yoko's songs on that album. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if my least favorite album, I would give uh, a rating of, say, 7 out of 10. That's not so bad. That's yeah. what I would give sometime in New York City. Um, Is there too much Frank Zappa for your liking? <laughs> There's never too much Frank Zappa. <laughs> Correct but answer. I, I um, no, I, I think more about the first album more than anything else, and just to have New York City on an album, and I absolutely devour, devour, "Woman Is the Nigger of the World." At this point, it's one of my favorite solo John Lennon songs. Um, to have those and John Sinclair, you know, there's a lot of worthwhile stuff on there. And like I said, I like Yoko stuff on there too. Sisters of Sisters, Born in a Prison, you know, a very uh, jazzy feel she gave to that song. Um, Paul, huh, hmm, that's tough. I guess McCartney too, which I admire really? him. Yeah, I admire him for doing it and for experimenting with all the different songs, uh, sounds that he did. But as far as what are good songs, um, and I love Coming Up, and I love Temporary Secretary. Nobody I Know is, I think, is a throwaway. I think, you know, I wish more work would have been done on Dark Room. I do like the instrumentals a lot, and I do like bogey music a lot. I think Summer's Day Song should have been trimmed. Um, it's a very pretty piece of work. Um, Waterfalls is another song that went on too long, but it's really a, a beautiful song. Um I honestly think, and I'll get crucified for saying this, um, a lot of people love One of These Days, and I'm not a major fan of that song. Um, it's another song that I just think Paul went into the studio and made it up on the spot. And This is the same a lot of place, people... Ken. Don't worry. I don't <laughs> like it either. You know, um, a lot of people love it because it's old-style Paul. It's acoustic Paul. Um yeah, I just um, there are certain songs that Paul has done that sounds like he wrote it in five minutes. Not a lot of songs, you know. And as I've said on my shows, we shouldn't begrudge the guy for having the talent to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I like "Dance Tonight" as a song, but it sounds like something he wrote in five minutes. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there's uh. That's the criticisms that I can make from McCartney, too. And yet it's being acknowledged for being ahead of its time with Paul experimenting with different synthesizer sounds. And, you know, it, a lot of people see that as being a precursor to, you know, stuff that, say, Kraftwerk did. 
you know. Um, on McCartney but, too. Yeah. Because of the different sounds mm-hmm. that he was getting out of it, I still like it. I like what McCartney can do on the spur of the moment. I mean, at the same time, look at um, electronic. Uh, I'm sorry. Electric Arguments. I'm sorry. Um, That's an album where every single song was conceived and recorded in one day. And yet, those songs I like a lot. You know, I think there's a lot more work put into those songs. But, you know, uh, McCartney 2 was... Don't get me wrong. Every single solo album has worthwhile material on it. McCartney 2, I would grade maybe, you know, a 6 or 7 out of 10. Okay. And that to me is the weakest. You know, I have to be in the mood to listen to Give My Regards to Broad Street as an album, but when I do, I really enjoy it. I don't look at an album like that the same way as I would an album of all new material from Paul. Um, and I really, as much as it's maligned, I like most of everything on Wildlife. Mm-hmm. So, but probably McCartney too, I guess, would be my least favorite of McCartney. George. Hmm. It's a toss-up between Extra Texture and Somewhere in England. Um, Somewhere in England, I've grown to love a lot more <laughs> these years. I had um, I had a problem with that album because of the knowledge of knowing of the four songs that Warner Brothers rejected for that album, which I think would have made the album much better. <laughs> but I do like just about everything on that album anyway. Um Extra texture again. <laughs> I st- I really like every song on that album except for his name is legs. And then again, I don't hate his name is legs. So I think George has been very consistently strong throughout his solo career. Um, I I really can't offer too much criticism where George is concerned. I like everything he's done practically. It's um most of the solo catalog from all four of them are good to great. There are very few that I just consider really, truly bad songs. Um, from Ringo, my least favorite. Huh. I really don't know. Maybe Old Wave. And Old Wave, I like everything on side one. Um, probably the way that it ends, which uh, might be considered just throwaways some jams there with the songs going down and everybody's in a hurry but me and yet i love all the songs on side one as far as we can go on side two is a gorgeous very melancholy sad love song i love that one it's probably that you know i think from time takes time on this has been ringo's renaissance period (laughs) you know Time Takes Time, the albums he worked on with Mark Hudson, those are the strongest albums of his career. Since working with Mark Hudson, all of his albums have been very good, uh, very varied, and I love all the songwriting that he's been doing. Um, and, I, you know, they've all been strong albums. I don't think they're as strong as the ones with Mark Hudson, but they could be more interesting because a lot of what he did with Mark Hudson and with the Roundheads, I think Mark tried to make... Ringo's album sound maybe a little bit too beatle and bring in the Beatles sound. There's a lot less of that since working with Mark Hudson. Mm-hmm. 
So, Ken, where can people find you nowadays? I'm locked in my den these days because of being quarantined. Um, <laughs> but uh, you can always uh, look at my website, kenmichaelsradio.com. And you can email me at everylittlething at att.net. Um, and you can check out my syndicated show for Every Little Thing by going to my website, kenmichaelsradio.com. There's a page there. <clears throat> Losing my voice. There's a page there for Every Little Thing, which lists all the radio stations that carry the show. It's 40 stations altogether. There are links to each radio station. It tells you the times that they're broadcast, and on the websites you can stream the show. And I should also add that, unlike a lot of syndicated shows in the past, when a radio station, when a new radio station takes every little thing, they have access to all my shows. So if you were to go through many of the radio stations during the week and listen to their broadcast of the show, they could all be different shows. They're not all doing the same show every single week. So, um, and I'm still producing new shows all the time. Some of those 40 stations all run the new show at the same time, but not all of them do. And um, so if you want to hear that, you can find that out at my website. Things We Said Today, which is a bi-weekly show. There'll be a new show coming out this week in which we talk about our five <laughs> least favorite Beatles songs. Um, and also about my 2000 shows altogether, um, 2000 Beatles shows in my career. Uh, you can find things we said today on podbean.com. Type in, in the word search Beatles, and then you'll see things we said today. There'll be an icon for that. You click that on and you'll get our most recent shows, you know, through all of our shows. We can also be heard on iTunes and also on YouTube. That's strictly an audio show. And as for Talk More Talk, um, that show also airs bi-weekly. It first airs as a live broadcast every other Monday night. Um, our next show will be on June the 1st. We'll be talking about George Harrison's Brainwashed album on there. And that's with uh, Kid O'Toole, Tom Hunyadi, and Mean Mr. Mayo. If I didn't say it already, things we said today is with my co-hosts Alan Cozen and Darren DeVivo. Uh, Talk More Talk first airs on Facebook. You have to go to our page, which is Talk More Talk, a solo Beatles video cast. And you can actually comment about what we're talking about in the show. Every show has Beatle news in it. And then we follow that with our main topic, which, I like I said, will be brainwashed this, this next show. I just like to say something quick about uh, Talk More Talk. Um, I just want to give a thank you to you guys, you know, Talk More Talk, because ever since I, I started my show, um, you guys have been really supportive of mine, and I, I really appreciate all the shout-outs at the end of uh, different episodes. Like, it really uh, puts a smile on my face, and I'm really grateful. Well, you know... Um... There are Beatle fans out there that are hungry for all these podcast shows. And these Beatle podcast shows are multiplying at a very fast rate these days. It's hard to keep up with all of them. And I'm just grateful that any of them want to have me as a guest like you have. 
and um, you know, I get to promote my work and share my feelings about the Beatles. And at the same time, we promote your show on our shows. So you got cross promotion going on there, which is really important. So um, with Talk More Talk, like I said, every other Monday night, it's on the Facebook page. After that, it stays on our Facebook page. We also put the video on YouTube. We also extract the audio from that and put that on YouTube. And the audio alone also goes on Podbean, just like things we said today, and iTunes. And it's also heard on Spotify and iHeartRadio. I think that's everything. <laughs> so, um, so I can be heard on all these different shows. Yeah. <laughs> Every little thing, things we said today, talk more talk. Now I have four out of the five co-hosts have been on my show now all i need Mm. to do is finally nail down joe mayo for a date (laughs) well i'm sure that won't be too long from now you know we're all pretty happy to be appearing on other shows because uh i I really like supporting all the different shows there are i just wish that there was more than 24 hours in a day because there's so many podcast shows that i want to listen to you know, I started listening to your interview with Pierce Hemmingson. I didn't have enough time to finish. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of really good shows out there. And um, I like supporting all of them. And it's nice to see <clears throat> a young person like you get into this. I mean, it's just what I love with this podcast. I would have liked to have heard it anyways. Uh, but a podcast with this subject didn't already exist like from a fan perspective so it's like oh well shit i guess i have to make it <laughs> yeah well i love the fact that now you got even more specialized shows like like tom Hunyadi does two legs which is only on mccartney's solo career <laughs> um you talked about sirius xm they have a radio show that's just on george's career <laughs> i wish there'd be a ringo podcast there will be in time <laughs> but you know, I'm sure there time are some on John. Time. That's very good. Very proud of you, Ethan. <laughs> I made up for that whole out of the blue fiasco. Oh, it's not a fiasco. You know how many times people have said that mistake? You know, so many people call that song out of the blue. It's out the blue. <laughs> I mean, it's close enough. You're fine. There's nothing wrong, isn't <laughs> you? <laughs> You'll I'm just very self-conscious. You can live with this. You can. And every single host of a Beatles show has made mistakes before. So just remember that. It's impossible not to. Well, hopefully I make more mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Anyways, Ken, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you off there. I was just going to say thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. And uh, just to talk about this milestone, uh, you know, I don't mind talking about it now because it's new, reaching 2,000 shows. <laughs> but, um, you know, everyone has been so nice to me saying, here's to another 2,000, which is not likely to happen. <laughs> At least but, make it uh, to 3,000. I, I don't know. 2,500? You know, it, it, it took me 38 years to get to 2,000. And part of the reason I got to 2000 is because I have so many different shows. So do you expect me to keep up this pace of three different Beatles shows? Actually four, because there's two versions of every little thing. 
until I'm 90? Do you want to? (laughs) (laughs) Who knows if I'll be alive? Who knows if I'll be coherent enough to talk? Uh, You know, I'd like to think I could do that, but to make it to 2000, I'm most grateful for it. And so I'll let you know when I make it to 2100. Okay. <laughs> Let's at least try to make it to 2,500. Like we'll a see. Negotiation. <laughs> All right, to everyone out there listening, thank you for listening. You can go home now. Dance on the Run is produced by Ethan Alexander. Additional voiceovers by Richard Fulton. This has been a Showtown production.